Well, good morning, good afternoon, uh, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake Kettle, and thank you for joining us. As always, it's great to be back with you. It's great to be here. It's it's been a beautiful day here on the East Coast. I got to tell you, we had a really nice sunny day. Uh, towards the afternoon, and it was really great. So I hope some of you guys across the country got some of that sun. And uh, with me, as always, uh, now, and uh, for the second podcast, is uh, Brian Norman. Brian, welcome back. It's great to have you as the co-host. Hey, Jake. How are you? Still here. (laughs) Okay, so I just wanted to give people an update, um, Dose Nation listeners, an update. Uh, The symposium conference, which we talked about in the last podcast with Dennis McKenna, um, it's going to be in Amherst. This uh, it's the weekend of April twelfth and thirteenth. Um, some of our speakers are Dennis McKenna, Hamilton Morris, Alexandre Tanus, uh, Jag Davies is speaking from the Drug Policy Alliance. We have Josh Wickerham from Ethno Botanical Stewardship Council, um, Lawrence Millman. He's going to be speaking about Amanita muscaria and stoned reindeer, and um, the tickets are twenty dollars in advance or $30 at the door if you are in the area. And uh, there's also a live stream that's $10, and that's on symposia.com, which is spelled P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A. And we also have um, Ryan LeCompte and Tony Macy for uh, Veterans for Entheogenic Therapy, which is the topic of today's podcast. Yeah, and and uh, I want to I want to introduce uh, all of our guests today because since we have we have two different guests on today and it's going to be a great episode. It's going to be really interesting. I'm really excited. So, let's introduce our first guest. Rick Doblin, PhD, is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. <clears throat> he received his doctorate in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of the medicinal uses of psychedelics and marijuana and his master's thesis on a survey of oncologists about smoked marijuana versus the oral THC pill in nausea for cancer patients. His undergraduate thesis at New College of Florida was a 25-year follow-up to the classic Good Friday experiment, which evaluated the potential of psychedelic drugs to catalyze religious experiences. He also conducted a 34-year follow-up study to Timothy Leary's Concord Prison Experiment. Rick studied with Dr. Stanis Lovgrov and was among the first to be certified as a holotropic breathwork practitioner, which if you haven't looked into that, that's fascinating. Um, his uh, professional goal is to help develop legal context for the beneficial uses of psychedelics and marijuana, primarily as, a, as prescription medicines, but also for personal growth for otherwise healthy people, and eventually to become a legally licensed psychedelic therapist. He founded MAPS in 1986 and currently resides in Boston with his wife and three children. Rick, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great that we can have this public discussion about this. Yeah, it'll be great. And uh, I also uh, want to uh, introduce uh, our second guest today, who uh, is going to be at Symposium 2014. Uh, Ryan LeCompte is a former Marine infantryman who honorably and actively served from uh, 2007 to 2011. Uh, and uh, uh, Ryan, uh, how are you today? I'm fantastic, Jake. Thank you. And you've been uh, you've been a participant in the MDMA assisted psychotherapy research. Is that correct? Uh, no. Okay. Tony Macy, Tony Macy was a participant. Okay. Correct. And Tony I'm just Macy, the, uh, founder of okay. the group. Yeah, Tony will be speaking uh, at the opening reception on the twelfth 
Okay, that'll be great. Yeah, and Ryan will be there also. So, uh, Brian, why don't you go ahead and lead off? Rick, how about you? Uh, what's going on with maps? <laughs> how about you give us an update? What's going on with maps? And uh, <laughs> okay, I'll let you take. Well, uh, there's two main areas of research that we're engaged in right now. Um, one is with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And we have an international series of phase two pilot studies that are being conducted right now in Israel, Canada, um, Charleston, South Carolina, and Boulder, Colorado. And we've completed two of them already, uh, one in the United States and one in Switzerland. And our first studies were mostly um, women survivors of childhood sexual abuse and adult rape and assault, and we had tremendous results, uh, over 80% no longer had PTSD at the end of the treatment. And now we're doing a study with veterans and firefighters, mostly veterans, and we're getting also good results. So we're showing that the cause of the PTSD doesn't really change the treatment. Um, and then we're moving towards uh, what's called phase three studies, which are the large-scale studies that you need for FDA to prove safety and efficacy. And we're currently predicting that we'll have MDMA approved as a prescription medicine in uh, 2021, and it'll cost us around uh, $18, $19 million. So it's a, it's a major endeavor, but we already have about $6.5 million committed to it. And uh, so that's, that's one major area. We're also looking at MDMA for uh, social anxiety in autistic adults. That study is starting at Harbor UCLA. And we're in the design stage and about to submit a protocol to FDA for a study of uh, people with life-threatening illnesses with anxiety, also with MDMA. We've completed a study with LSD for the first study of LSD-assisted therapy in over 40 years, also for end of life. And that's been published in the Journal of Nervous Mental Disease and reported positively in the New York Times. And then the, the other major area of research that we're trying now is marijuana, also for post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans. And we've been actually struggling for 22 years to do medical marijuana drug development research. We started in 1992 during the AIDS epidemic with Dr. Donald Abrams in UC San Francisco, and we had FDA and IRB Institutional Review Board approval. But for a peculiar series of reasons, uh, you know, there's marijuana everywhere, but the federal government has a monopoly on the supply of marijuana that's legal for use in FDA-approved research. And if you want to use marijuana to look at what's harmful with marijuana, you know, they're happy to give it to you. But if you want to use it to try to develop it into a medicine, it's been, uh, until recently, been impossible for us to do it. We, we had a... Um, marijuana for AIDS wasting study with Donald Abrams that was um, approved, but we couldn't get the marijuana. Then we had a study with uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, who now works for GW Pharmaceuticals. That was marijuana for migraines. We couldn't get the marijuana. Then we had a period of seven years where we were trying to buy 10 grams of marijuana for vaporizer research to demonstrate that it's a non-smoking delivery system. It doesn't burn the plant, and it would be... Um, I'm sure possible to make it through the FDA with vaporization, and we were blocked from that. So we're the only people in America that spent seven years and couldn't buy 10 grams of marijuana. Um, and then we tried to break the federal monopoly on supply at UMass Amherst and get a license. 
for Professor Lyle Craker under contract to MAPS, and that started in 2001. And we won a DEA administrative law judge lawsuit and ended up um, the DEA rejected the recommendation, and then we sued. And eventually, unfortunately, we lost in the appeals court. They accepted the DEA's arguments that NIDA provided an adequate supply. So I realized that was frustrated. So we went back and we've recently, the big breakthrough is that we obtained public health service approval for a study in um, 70 U.S. veterans with chronic treatment-resistant PTSD. This will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona. And we had FDA approval about three and a half years ago, but it took us all that time to get access to the marijuana. And we are now at this just moment, right before this uh, podcast, I got off the phone with Sue Sisley. There's a, a group of veterans and others that are making a protest in Arizona because the state of Arizona has collected over $6 million from medical marijuana patients and dispensaries. And the money is supposed to be used to further the cause of the Medical Marijuana Act. And the House of Representatives in Arizona recently passed a bill saying that they should fund our study. The cost is going to be around $750,000. And a Republican senator refused to let it come to a vote in the Arizona State Senate. And so there's protests today. I'll just say that, that the protests are so outrageous. I just found out that there's a free speech area in front of the Capitol. They've been forbidden from demonstrating there. They've been moved a, a mile away. And Sue Sisley said that the uh, police have brought out snipers because they're somehow or other overreacting to this demonstration. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like well, a proper I mean, response. Whenever it, look, look, whenever it comes to protesting, there's, you know, the government responds with brutality. That's it. That's, that's, that's the end of the story. You know, even if it's peaceful, there needs to, because the, the message can't get out. That idea can't spread to a larger group of people or it can become dangerous. That's why there's, yeah, that's why there's such a blockage of research. And the, the last thing I'll, I'll just say is that with MDMA assisted psychotherapy, um, really it's the search for a cure. And it's a three and a half month therapy process. And people only get MDMA three times a month apart with weekly non drug psychotherapy. And at the end of the program, mm -hmm. they don't get MDMA. It's not a take home drug. Whereas with marijuana, it's more about treating symptoms and people with PTSD who use marijuana tend to use it on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And if they stop using it, a lot of the symptoms come back. And when I explained this to the FDA, we had a teleconference to discuss the protocol during, at the end of which they approved the protocol. But I just wanted to explain to them this distinction between MDMA as the search for a cure. And it doesn't always cure people. Sometimes it will reduce symptoms and there are some treatment resistant people. And the marijuana, which is just treating symptoms. And what uh, Dr. Lofren, who is the director of the FDA Division of Psychiatric Products, said, um, he, he reminded us that you don't need to apologize for treating symptoms, that in the area of psychiatric medications, they almost never cure anything, and that the medications are almost always chronic medications to reduce symptoms. So I think it's completely legitimate for patients with PTSD to have options. Some of them may prefer marijuana, some may prefer MDMA, and our job is to try to study and understand how it is that these medicines work and then to do the science 
to satisfy the FDA that they should become legal prescription medicines. So that, that's basically what we're about. We, we also do harm reduction work at festivals, trying to pave the way for a post-prohibition world. And so I'm, I'm not sure what all we'll talk, to, uh, talk about today, but, but we do have a, a pretty broad educational mission and harm reduction mission, as well as trying to be a nonprofit pharmaceutical company for psychedelics and marijuana. One of the questions that I that I that I feel like I need to ask is, you know, is federal is federal involvement? I mean, obviously, federal legalization is needed for it to be used across all states, you know, and 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 for it not to be a felony across state lines, so on and so forth. But with the federal, but would the federal government ever really get involved in um, in in heavily regulating the marijuana, or would that be more on a state basis? Would you say? And what you're proposing? Well, we're working on a federal level, mm-hmm. and so when you talk about working with FDA to make a drug into a medicine, um, you know that that's a federal shift, and it would be rescheduled. Assuming we succeed with mm-hmm. both MDMA and marijuana, uh, and the FDA decides that the evidence demonstrates sufficient safety and efficacy, then DEA has to reschedule. And right? Maybe maybe they would just put it into schedule two, but. Then once it's approved by the FDA and it's federally rescheduled, it still has to be rescheduled in each of the states. Mm-hmm, yeah. So that so that right now, methadone, for example, is not legal all across America. Methadone has been accepted as a treatment for opiate addiction in many states, but some states have refused to approve it. So our work is politically to make it through or scientifically first through the FDA and then politically through the different states. And right now, with 20 medical marijuana states in the District of Columbia and two marijuana legalization states and others in the works, Alaska right now, um, I was in a meeting yesterday with a group of people <coughs> excuse me, who are um, planning a marijuana legalization initiative in 2016 in Massachusetts, in uh, Nevada, and, uh, Arizona, and Maine, um, those other groups in California. Most of the reform is on the state level. And I think the only reason that we've been able to get permission for this marijuana PTSD study, which has been resisted for, as I said, for us for 22 years, but medical marijuana research really has been resisted for over 40 years since the early 70s when it was clear that marijuana was helpful for nausea control for cancer chemotherapy. The only reason we're able to make progress on a federal level is because of the states acting on their own. So I think it's a combination of state-level reform trying to build up enough pressure so that the federals will reform as well. But the federal government tends to act last, not first. How is the DEA responding right now? Well, I am of the opinion that the DEA will respond in a uh, prompt and favorable manner because I think a decision has been made at the highest levels of the Obama administration that for this particular study of marijuana in 70 U.S. veterans with chronic treatment-resistant PTSD at a time when 22 veterans a day are committing suicide, that I, th- I believe that they made the decision to let the study go forward. And I think that we, we know for sure that the Public Health Service said yes. I've been in contact with NIDA to arrange for the marijuana. They're very cooperative. Sue Sisley, the principal investigator, the doctor who's going to do the study, uh, has submitted her Schedule One license application to DEA, uh, but we have not heard back from them. But my my assumption, and we'll we'll see if it turns out to be correct, is the DEA will 
let the study go forward. Yeah. Well, that, so yeah, I mean, and it seems like no matter where you go, the DEA tends to be a big stumbling block. And I, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I, I, and I, and it's I mean true. that seriously because uh, yeah. in, uh, recently in Ecuador, um, uh, I believe it was President Rafael Correa had a very hard time uh, kicking the DEA out of his country. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, and they they're they're very they're very resistant sometimes, but. Uh, well, I, I think they are. And, you know, part I mean, it sounds kind of uh, crude, you could say, but the military has more guns than the DEA. Yeah. And so by aligning ourselves, you know, and responding to this national perceived crisis of the veterans with PTSD, um, I think we've been able to balance the power of the DEA or and, and then also the other part is just the public opinion. I mean, what we've seen is that support for medical marijuana and even support for legalization has been growing and support for treating people with drug problems as a health matter rather than as a criminal justice matter is also growing and we've seen the incredible injustices that have been caused by the war on drugs and the racist way that the laws are implemented and the way in which the prison system has been sucking up so much money it used to be that in california there was around twice as much money spent as education as on corrections. And California had the best public education system in the world through all the uh, University of California state universities. And now that's virtually reversed, and they are spending almost twice as much on corrections as they are on education, and the quality and the price of quality is going down and price is going up. So I think there is a growing national consensus for a change in policy. And I think the DEA, the way my approach is to the DEA is that I would like them to fight real crime, not victimless crime. Exactly. And that there, you know, that, that, that there's no need for them to go out of business. Uh, I mean, there is a need for them to go out of business in terms of, you know, the drug enforcement, but that once we have a post prohibition world, there, there still is going to be a lot of other crime and particularly more violent crime that people care about more. And, you know, this is not to say that, the you know, the drug gangs, a lot of them do commit violence. But and once the source of income from drugs is removed and that's legitimized the way we've done with alcohol and tobacco doesn't mean the gangs are going to disappear. So I think from a employment point of view, it's not that we're against the police and it's we, we need the police, but we just need them to be doing things that are that everybody agrees are crimes, not you know, victimless crimes. The well, public, the public need... opinion of police would be so much better if people didn't identify them as the bad guys. Yeah, that's very true. It's, you know, it's very true. For, oh. any, for anyone that smokes marijuana, the biggest threat in their environment be, just becomes the police, and that's unfortunate. But, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've had... Um, you know, there, there was one time uh, a couple of years ago where um, I was calling the MAPS office and um, I was talking to this woman, Valerie Mojeko, who was working there. And she was saying that there was police all over the place because somebody uh, about five houses down had murdered a pregnant woman. And that just helped me to feel compassion for the police. I mean, how horrible some of the things they have to deal with must be. And then it started making me think about police having post-traumatic stress disorder from their jobs. And so that's why we've opened up our 
study with this to veterans, firefighters, and police officers. And we've had I, one, or, one or two police officers inquire. So I think the um, I think the police issue is going to be very successful. Um, a personal story for me. I'm not going to get into it, but I had a I had a really really bad experience with a police officer, and um, we. We had to have a meeting. It was an internal investigation at the department, and the police chief had to apologize to me that his sergeant had done multiple tours in Vietnam and Iraq. And and that was his excuse. That was his excuse to me, you know? And um, treatments like this, to me, it's like incredible to get rid of that. Yeah, it, it took a lot. It was hard for me also to think of the police as potential allies because we are so used to being, you know, in opposition. And, you know, I think a healthy society, you know, peop- the police are an expression of the population and they're they're doing, you know, really important work. And, and I hope we can get back to that uh, as soon as possible. Uh, so, Ryan, how did you how did you come to be involved with MAPS and um Tell us a little bit about your story. Well, uh, I sort of set foot on my journey uh, July 29th, 2008. And uh, this was a time when I was active duty, uh, Marine Corps. And I was stationed uh, in D.C. And uh, a young gentleman there that I was serving with was Sergeant Jorge Leon Alcibar. And uh, this guy had been a, a great friend of mine. Is uh, my drinking buddy. You know, we we'd hang out and late nights of watching fights and football games and in the barracks, lonely on the weekends. And uh, we got to know each other. And one morning for muster, he didn't show up. And Leon had just gotten back from Iraq. Uh, he had deployed with Third Battalion, Second Marines, and uh, he had gotten back and he they decided to put him in DC for the remaining amount of uh, his contract in the Marine Corps. So he was going to be getting out here in a little bit. And uh, so uh, he served with me at Marine Barracks, eighth and I in Washington, DC. And uh, we found him, we knew he was struggling with alcohol. uh, But I mean, it was the Marine Corps is a big fraternity. I mean, that's how we operate. We're, we have, uh, it's publicly, it's privately accepted to drink as long as the alcohol doesn't spill out into the public eye and ruin the image of the Marine Corps. But that's, you know, that's what we're about. We're, we were born in a bar. I mean, the Marine Corps was born in Tun Tavern, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1775. So this idea that uh, a Marine can muscle through his addiction is, is it, to me, is a complete fallacy, to say the least. But it's so important that on the day that we found Sergeant Leon, uh, when he took his own life in his barracks room, uh, they conducted an investigation and found no alcohol content in his system. Uh, and this guy drank like a fish. Uh, when we found him in his barracks room, he, uh, he'd set aside his dress blues and, he had just picked up Sergeant a couple days before that and got his stripe put on his arms. Uh, and this is, picking up Sergeant is, is something huge that every Marine 
uh, aspires to achieve. I mean, the NCO bill itself, you know, picking up corporal is what we consider the NCO. And the NCO's creed is something that we all, it's, it's that blood stripe down your pant leg. When you get that blood stripe, that you are a non-commissioned officer. And that is, that's very honorable in the Marine Corps. And we, uh, we respect someone who has, and we show our respect in our own ways, uh, sort of like a fraternity does, but, uh, Sergeant Leon picked up. And so it didn't make sense to the rest of us that he would take his own life. It was a very, it was very subtle. Uh, and for the rest of us who were, uh, dealing with our own issues, couldn't catch it. And I felt like if there was something that was put in place to, uh, not just uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy is, is so huge, but on the other side, like what um, I'm working on with the department of defense and the Pentagon is to try and get a program that does not, that uh, does not subjugate Marines or military service members who are seeking uh, help while on active, uh, while on active duty. So uh, the, the idea of, Sergeant Leon going to a battalion commander or a battalion psychiatric uh, doctor was something that was frowned upon um, nine times out of 10 because the issues that they were dealing with uh, uh, were could and, and would be seen some in most cases as a failure to adapt. And uh, so you basically are subjugated to a series of more intensive questions, those, uh, those, those sets of questions can be used to eventually get you separated from the Marine Corps. And then you're left with, uh, no support at all virtually because, um, something like failure to adapt isn't necessarily a medical disorder, but it is, uh, it's something that if you get out, it's nine times out of 10, it takes a couple years for you to seek additional benefit, uh, to seek out VA benefits later on that would treat your symptoms. And so I won't, I I can get into that, but my main reason for veterans for entheogenic therapy was to, because of Sergeant Leon, if there was something like MDMA that was available to active duty service members, as well as veterans, which is all we can do at this point is offer services and um, get veterans together who are suffering right now, uh, I know, Brian, you've heard the 23 a day are, are ending their own lives right now. Yeah, it's an incredible number. And, you know, um, it's not suicide and that's not just it's – the, it's the family that's really affected. The family is tremendously affected when someone takes their life. It's, it's, it ripples. The, the effects are in, you know, the parents, um, that person's parents, the children, and it's uh, – that's – that's unacceptable that they're that it's that high in the military. Sure. And that's among veterans who are returning. And, um, there was a story in, uh, was it San Francisco or San Diego, Rick? San Diego, San Diego. I'll, I'll let you explain the story. Oh. Yeah. It's a great um, story. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tragic, but tragic at the same time. Great. Um, there, there were last, um, I think it was the, um, 25th of March, there was a story on the NBC News in San Diego. And we had absolutely nothing to do with the story. And it was about parents whose 
son was a veteran and he had committed suicide. And the parents were wondering if his life would have been saved if he would have been a subject in the MDMA studies. And they were basically saying and appealing to the military that they wanted the military to get more involved with MDMA PTSD research because that could perhaps save other people. It was too late for their son. And that kind of compelling you know, personal story, the anguish of that is uh, remarkable. And it used to be that the kind of news stories 10, 15 years ago would be, uh, you know, somebody at a party, at a rave, uh, overheated and died. And then the parents would be, you know, demanding that ecstasy be, you know, criminalized even further and the penalties be increased and people go to jail. And now we're seeing a shift in that. But we're seeing a shift in it because of your work at Maps and because of yeah. utilizing the internet. Um, yeah. Well, I also, I, and, and I also think that 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 um, there's also been a just 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 a shift in the way people are beginning to to view this based on the incarceration rates alone. Uh, and people the, who study the prison industrial who study the prison industrial complex are beginning to realize that. It's costing us an incredible amount of money to keep people in prison. And in private prisons, they're making an incredible amount of money keeping people in prisons for, for things like MDMA, you know, uh, marijuana, so on and so forth. And that, you know, people are beginning to realize that, wait a minute, are these people really in jail because they're doing something wrong or are people just making money? Or are people just spending money? <laughs> Yeah, it's a perverse situation, and and I, I I think we're at a tipping point though, and you know I, I say that very cautiously because there always could be a backlash, and you know there was a <laughs> we have a dog joining us. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, He's excited. He is. Yeah, yeah, but but I, I think this idea of um, the way in which the prison system and prohibition is really counterproductive in terms of both treating drug abuse and then also suppressing the beneficial uses. And it, it's harder to see lost benefits. But I think once we are able to complete our research with MDMA and other groups are working with psilocybin for end of life and um, alcohol and tobacco addiction, and then you know with the marijuana, I think once we are able to um, really see the lost benefits, the real true cost of prohibition will become clear. But it's going to be really up to us to try to model good behavior in a sense, because ending the war on drugs doesn't end all drug problems. And so we're going to have to really focus on, uh, you know, smart regulations. The and, framework. Yeah. The framework and, that surrounds it. I, that, that's, that, see, yeah, but that's a really key point, because the drug policy that we have is focusing on drugs themselves are like evil or bad or good. And really, it's the relationship. It's the framework that you have. It's how people relate to it that determines whether it's a beneficial outcome or a harmful outcome. And so we have a kind of simplistic approach that the drugs carry these properties mm. when it's really about the relationships. And so I think we can develop a society that has healthier relationships that operates in a post-prohibition world where we will have less drug abuse than we do now. And people will feel less stigmatized, more willing to accept help sooner, and will have an enormous amount of benefits. So just as an example, for today, um, MAPS was contacted by a scientist who wants to get our opinion on how to get approval for marijuana research because he wants to do studies with isolated THC on brain cancer. 
and that he would be um, somehow or other, you know, using surgery to apply these cannabinoids. Because now we've learned that despite, you know, generations of um, propaganda about MDMA causing cancer and causing lung cancer, actually the cannabinoids have incredible anti-tumor properties. And we know that marijuana does not cause lung cancer and that it's been shown to be effective in a large number of cancers. So we've really had a policy that has caused tremendous suppression of science and decades and decades of research has been set back. But now that's been changing. And so really it's up to us to proceed in a responsible way, not to try to claim that legalization is going to solve all problems or that you know, MDMA or LSD or marijuana is the panacea that will solve all problems, but that I think if we can work carefully and also try to reach out to parents of children, because a lot of the drug war is still driven by the fears of families that their kids will have Absolutely. Uh, problematic experiences with drugs. And, you know, I know I'm the father of uh, three teenagers and, you know, you, you worry about them for sure. And at the same time, I just see that they and their friends not all of them. Our youngest is just a freshman in high school, but the oldest is a senior in college and a senior, I mean, a freshman in college and a senior in high school that, you know, the, the laws against drinking are widely ignored and they prevent the parents from responsibly educating their own kids. And so I think that's one of the most painful parts of the drug war is that they get in the family relations. And if you look at the cultures that have successfully integrated psychedelics, um, like the Native American church that uses peyote and the Weechols that use peyote in Mexico and the ayahuasca groups and, you know, the use of alcohol in Europe. You know, there's a lot more um, family engagement and family education, and we've tried to pretty much brush that aside and criminalize that in the U.S. Well, I think it's also because they've held on to a lot of that multi-generationalism in Europe and other places that we have not held on to here. Um, you know, we have the nuclear family, you know, mom, dad, kids live in the house together, you know, but grandma lives somewhere else or, you know, the aunt and the uncle live somewhere else. I think in a lot of these countries, you have the entire family unit educating and, you know, uh, the grandson, you know, gets wisdom from the grandmother and from his mother and from his father and grandfather and sometimes even their great grandfather. So, uh, you know, so, so yeah. I, I think there is a difference. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the rite of passage has definitely become something of a of a stagnant initiation. I like the way Rick had put it about his bar mitzvah. I thought that was <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Brian, well, what is what are you? How do other veterans, when you talk to them about this, how do they respond to you? Oh, they're one hundred percent supportive. I mean, they see the numbers. At least the ones that are plugged in and and are uh, are healthy enough, healthy minded enough. Um, to see and be able to understand the the magnitude the, for the ones that we can't reach. Uh, that's what this group is for, you know, and I'm trying to fan out to those guys because I know that if they had that chance to where uh, the VA would offer them something that wouldn't be as sedating as some of these anxiolytics that they're handing out. I, I really believe that these guys would, it's just like the butterfly effect, paying it forward and, and helping others and helping others and think it'll, you know, but for the ones that are plugged in, 100%, 100%. They're dying. There's 23 a day, and we got to do something. So, so you know, I, I should say that, that I think the message is finally also getting through to the Department of Defense and the VA. Sure. That it, it used to be that they were just, you know, hear psychedelics or marijuana and run the other direction. 
But now I think that the problem has reached such a magnitude and the, the public support for providing um, treatments to people who we've asked to risk their lives for the rest of us, we, we need to do a lot more for them. And so I, I do see uh, a growing willingness on the part of the VA and the Department of Defense to look at new treatments because they also know that the treatments that they have, many of them are quite good, but even still, they don't work for everybody. And there's a large percentage of people for whom the therapies that are currently available are re-traumatizing rather than helping them deal with the trauma. And the medications that are available are really not very good. Mm. Are, are we going to be seeing a new DA administrator anytime soon? Um, I don't think that we will, but I don't think that that matters. I mean, I think that we really have been able... I, I guess I should say here that the FDA has been our main ally over the last 20 years, more than 20 years. And it's not that the FDA is pro-marijuana or pro-psychedelics. The FDA is just pro-science over politics. And they want us to have a chance to see in a controlled scientific setting whether these drugs can be proven to have more benefits than risks. And so it's based on that fundamental alliance with the scientific community and the FDA that we've been able to make progress. And the DEA has, um, you know, I mean, there is supposedly about a concern for drug abuse. And I think more and more, uh, other than a lot of their own private interests, that, that a lot of the DEA people are recognizing as well that if drug abuse is really your concern, that prohibition isn't necessarily the best way to go about reducing it. And at the same time, um, there's an incredible national security damage that's being done by the war on drugs and by all these different groups that are able to make you know, large amounts of money through the underworld. And many of these groups are um, antithetical to U.S. interests. I think the problem is that in the past, um, and Ryan might know more about this, but the Northern Alliance that sort of helped us, um, you know, and take Contra. over. Yeah, that that they and the Contras that that they were fueled by drug profits, mm. you know, opiates and opium. Um, yeah, yeah. So that so that from a, a national security perspective, what this is the one big missing piece of mm. the discussion about drug policy is an analysis from inside the CIA about the national security implications of legalizing drugs. And I think if, if they were to ever do such a study, and it's shocking that they've not done such a study, um, and maybe perhaps they've, they've done it, but we've never seen it. But I think <laughs> that the national security implications of drug legalization would be so clear in terms of defunding the underworld and um, bringing this back to public health that we would be a whole lot better off as... Um, you know, in defending our national security. And, and that's the tragedy of the drug war as well. Yeah, if we can see that with the, the cartels in Mexico right now, uh, and the biggest, one of the biggest issues is you can look at uh, the DEA centering its focus strictly on drug trafficking uh, and, and drug-related violence. And a lot of these, these issues they can focus more on where uh, the legalization um, can can remain completely openly. Uh, I guess I guess the same way that alcohol is treated that yeah. we have now, you know, and putting the same policies in place. 
um, so that they can do their jobs. And it's, it's a recursion back to the original foundational model for these institutions that yeah, we need uh, to get back to. Yeah, I, I would say there, though, that I think that alcohol is regulated actually a little bit too loosely. So, you know, in this, age, in this age of credit cards and, you know, electronic transfers, I think that it should be that we would have a license to do drugs. And, you know, so that if you are a drunk driver right now, you lose your license to drive, but you don't lose it. your license to drink. So that if we had some sort of license that wasn't hard to get, but was um, sort of easy to lose if you use the drug to hurt other people, that I think if we tighten up our regulations for alcohol um, and yet don't make it illegal, I mean, I think that it shouldn't be illegal. There's a lot of uh, beneficial uses of alcohol, but I, I do believe that there's ways to handle drugs that are better than the alcohol and tobacco models. And then we can sort of move marijuana and other drugs into it. And my fundamental view is that the more dangerous the drug is, the more important it is that it be legal. Because the more dangerous it is, the more problems people have. And you want people not to be stigmatized, but you want them to come forth as soon as they can for drug treatment, for uh, support systems. So people talk about how you know it's easier to legalize marijuana, but what do we do about the hard drugs? And I think the logic although emotionally it's difficult to get to this place. But I think the logic suggests that the more addictive and dangerous the drug is, the more important that it be legal and that there be treatment on demand and people are um, supported in their efforts to uh, obtain treatment. And also That's, people will gravitate yeah. towards you know safer, better drugs. That's beautiful. I think that the legalization like that, it's just like a – a parenting model, so to speak, you're building trust between the parent and the and the child, and uh, the way you handle a situation where your child is maybe 16 and going to their party for the first time, and uh, you say, "Son, I know there's going to be drugs there because I've got two boys, and I've me and my wife have considered this. Son, I know there's going to be drugs there. Uh, I want you, I, I want you to be responsible, but I'm not going to follow up behind you and, and be paranoid about it. I trust that you'll be back at the time I've given you." And uh, if they're not, then there's, you know, your license to go out and party have been rebuked. And, uh, you yeah. know, that the, that acts as a trusting deterrent for for kids who normally would resist uh, an oppressive uh, parent because they will resist even more. Uh, I think I know I have if the more that my dad brought the hammer down on me, the more I resisted yeah. and probably would go out and do something reckless. Uh, but if he. He, if he sat me down and said, look, um, here's here here's how it, it might go down. I, I want you to make the right decision. Placing the trust in the individuals and in the families is where the, the social issues need to uh, need to be centered on is with the family. Give the responsibility back to the family and school systems, too. I mean, it's just you can extrapolate that to a lot of different social institutions, I think. And you know what's incredible is what what has the scheduling of drugs done? They're still available everywhere. It's done nothing. The it, entire are, drug war has been a failure. And I'll say, I, I, you know what? They schedule one I mean, right I, now. I'll just be frank. I mean, I'll be frank. I have very little respect for the DEA. I have very little respect for the people who implemented the drug war. And I have very little respect for the foundations of the drug war because the entire thing is absurd. It's, it is absurd. I, I mean, well, it, it's also a human rights abuse because I, it is I think absolutely. If, if, we, 
you know, I, I mean, I like to talk about the freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly and the freedom of religion. And underlying all of those is the freedom of thought, exactly. the freedom to access the different yeah. aspects of your mind. And so the, the drug war, and in fact, um, your one cognitive of the liberty. Exactly. And one of the foundations that supports us is the Libra Foundation. And there's just an article in one of our recent bulletins about how supporting psychedelic research is furthering human rights. Actually, and, by, by supporting the drug war, you're not supporting human rights, though people think they are. A lot of what this does, and this was not brought to my attention until I listened to a talk by uh, Professor Noam Chomsky. I don't know if you're, uh, if you know, if you guys are, 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 yeah. are, 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 are fans of him or I, not. I think everybody's aware. <laughs> of, well, no, well, Chomsky. you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I run into a Maybe lot of younger, people who, I, people. who, I, who I, I say mean, I Noam Chomsky, that. and they say, "Who's that?" Or ah, I don't like that guy. But anyway, uh, you know, he <laughs> he he talked about uh, how literally people are being driven into poverty in the third world because of the cartels and beca- and the demand for the production of things like the coca plant. Uh, people, you know, farmers and peasants are being driven further and further into uh, these, you know, in, into this drug trade because they're the ones who are growing it, and they put their families at risk. I mean, it's a huge human rights problem. It's a huge human rights abuse. It's and, a huge problem among indigenous is, populations, especially who are doing a lot of the labor. So yeah, and the thing is, it's over there. Exactly, Wherever over there is we don't it's, see it. Yeah, right. And and it's yeah. it, and it's we the same thing it. with the, it, it. It's exactly like the diamond trade. We don't see it, so we don't care about it. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't matter if it is not within our uh, uh, situational perception, if I can use that word. Then it doesn't. It, it, it you know it doesn't enter into our consciousness. But people need to think about that farmer who is literally scared for his life and the life of his family who lives in Brazil or in Ecuador or in Bolivia and is cultivating this coca literally at, at the at the point of a gun. <laughs> That's who we really, you know, I mean, at, at, at some point we start talking about drug war and human rights abuse. Well, what about that poor farmer? Yeah, I don't watch too many documentaries because uh, this – it the mar it's it's so saturated so many documentaries but uh the house i live in really uh it really shook me after i watched that about the consequences of the drug war oh yeah it's like mm. it made me think oh hey there's that's going on here that's here you know it's kind of invisible though in a sense it, it interviews everybody you know from inner city people to to prison guards to uh, to doctors, and it, if anybody hasn't seen that, I I highly recommend it. When I was done watching that, I was uh, it shook me. Sorry, every once in a while I get a little heated. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, that's good. I th- I think that a lot of uh, what the drug war is being driven on is fear. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of that is exaggerated, and so that's where I think the research that we've been trying to do has been so difficult to get started, particularly mm-hmm. for marijuana, and so suppressed for decades with psychedelics. Now we have more psychedelic research than at any time in the last 40 years. But if we are able to demonstrate that there are safe and effective uses of these drugs, it runs, flies directly in the face of a lot of the propaganda that is generating this enormous fear that has been used for people to justify, you know, the huge cruelty of the war on drugs and throwing all these people in prisons and in cages and so I think that the what we're trying to do with the benefits in terms of therapeutic uses is both helpful for the patients and oh, it fundamentally has to be good for that. But it also has 
kind of a wider value in terms of communicating to the broader public who are so educated and misinformed about these drugs that they're terrified of them and you know one you're dose presenting of brain real damage. evidence you're presenting yeah. real solid evidence and what is and you know what this is so interesting i had a monk tell me this one time uh, a benedictine <laughs> monk this is exactly what he said to me he said you know what fear is i said what is that he said it's false evidence appearing real he said that's all it is he said you think it's real you think it's fear you're afraid of it it's right in front of but it, it's it's false evidence appearing real that's it yeah, and the internet is shedding a lot of light on this. I mean, it really is. One click of a mouse, maps has everything. <laughs> you, you can you pollinate that message out. Everybody has a phone on them now. Everybody's yeah, con- you're exactly. constantly plugged in. We don't have to go through these different avenues of in these hierarchies. You know, no, of, you of can newspapers and and you don't have to be afraid it, it to hide. ask the questions light has been anymore. Shed on it. You don't have to. You yeah. don't have to be afraid to ask questions anymore because you can just look at. You can just look it up. You can. Talk to yeah. people like Rick. You know, you can talk to people. I mean, it's it's great. Although I, I do want to say something, and maybe Ryan could really speak to this, it, which is that, you know, there's a role for fear, and there are things to be scared of, and that oh, if sure. you just don't want to be paralyzed by it or fearful of your own shadow. But I, I think managing fear, I'm sort of curious how, how they teach you in the Marines about that. Uh, I, I guess one way of doing it is to provide a buffer between your fear response and your, and, uh, and acting on that fear response. Uh, it's pretty interesting the way, um, you learn how to control that fear through this, what we call the buffer zone. And so each time you have an active engagement, how we're trained is that in between like how me and you are talking right now in between that, that lax moment there, relaxed moment, to an active engagement when rounds are flying downrange, we want that buffer to close. We want to just be here in between talking to you and engaging the enemy. And so if that buffer is never fully closed, usually in between that time frame, when rounds are moving past your face, uh, you're still talking just like a, it's a psychedelic experience. If yeah. you're not, if you're not, if your intention is not to, to receive fire, if you don't already affirm to yourself uh, that you're already dead before you leave uh, the fob, then you then you die. I mean, physically die. So this this pre this affirmation prior to leaving your base uh, ensures that you live because you let go of life, and for those who cling to life, die. And we, we know uh, one case we uh, we can tell these guys, we call them Corporal Uppums, uh, <laughs> Uppum from Saving Private Ryan. He's he's attaching until it took his his platoon commander's death and then he decided to act. So it's that fight or flight. And I think it's very important to have. I just think that to to get too attached to that, like we're back home now, we don't have to react and that buffer can sort of that buffer can expand again, you know, and we can just start to learn how to function within our society without having to go through the triggers. Um, so fear is important. Ego is important. It's just transparency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think ego and, and fear are both part of the survival operative system. I think they're important. You walk, yeah. what does Sasha say, Rick, uh, <laughs> walking out into a, 
a, a four-way uh, while focused on the transcendental might get you killed, you know, right. if you're not looking yeah. for cars. So yeah, it's extremism. Uh, it's extremism. It, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, any, in any politician that, that votes to send people to war and then when they get back home, they prevent access to a medicine that can help them. That's, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Well, I don't know what to say about Creedence, that. Creedence Clearwater Revival said it. You know, I ain't no senator's son. You know, it's, and, and, and no, and and it's and it's and it's the truth. I ain't no senator's son. That's why I'm going off to war because I ain't the senator's son, and the senator only gives a crap about his own kid. He don't care about your kid and what happens to your kid when he goes off to war. Some of them may, but the majority of them don't, because they're uh, not the ones in they're not the ones in the foxhole. They're not the guy next to you. I can well, tell you I, I, one thing: there's no atheists in foxholes. No, go ahead, Rick. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> Yo, well, uh, I, I guess I, I want to sort of get to a, kind of sort of a spiritual point here, which, which is why I think the um, psychedelic research is so important. Which is that one mm. of the essences of the psychedelic experience is this sense of connection and how we're all in this together, and that we're not isolated individuals so much as we're part of the web of life on the planet and we're part of um, not just human life, but all animal and plant life. And that if you can really know that and identify that, then you're less likely to demonize others or to be prejudiced against others. And so I think the more that we can get politicians who are mystics <laughs> and there, there have <laughs> been some, like, like I would say that the that's test. Yeah, exactly. The, the fruits of the experience that if you are um, able to realize that it's not just that you care about, you could say, I only care about my son, but all children are my son. Right. That I'm part of, you know, everything that that's where I think that if we can develop a culture where psychedelics are integrated and people can have these direct ex spiritual experiences that it's it's even more important than making MDMA available for PTSD or marijuana for PTSD mm -hmm. or marijuana for cancer, that the deeper vision is to really have a society where people identify with the whole planet. And that when you do that and you operate from that perspective, we'll end up appreciating people that are different from us rather than um, being scared of them because we'll see them as more similar to us than different and as part of the same family. And so for me, that's the deeper reason why I'm working agree. my whole life trying to get psychedelics integrated. There, there's medicine is the way that our culture, it's an opening door to the culture. But mm -hmm. the deeper vision is this spiritual vision. And I was inspired by Robert Mueller, who was the assistant secretary general of the United Nations for about 40 years. Mm -hmm. And he was the mystic of the United Nations. And he talked about global spirituality, which doesn't mean that there's everything condenses into one religion. It just means that People who, from whatever different religious tradition that they have, if they move from fundamentalism to mysticism, that then they have more in common with the mystics of the other religions than the fundamentalists of their own. And the more we can have millions and billions of people realizing this, and, and we are getting that through the globalization, through the way the world is coming together, uh, and that's, I think, one of the big hopeful signs is that if we can really ground in our own individuals and in larger groups in society this sort of mystical understanding, then there's really hope for the future.
No, I I totally agree. You know, I, I and I'm really glad that you brought up that point actually because uh, it's something that uh, Brother David Steindl Rast talks about, and uh, he 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 he's someone that I that I follow. Um, uh, Do you know that I introduced him to MDMA? Uh, no, no, I was not aware of that. <laughs> I yeah, actually well, visited the monastery that he is a part of um, in in New yeah. uh, Mount Sa- yeah Mount Savior. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm only saying that because he's all already acknowledged that in public, and you know he he was he was one of the people that Robert Mueller was interested in having me uh, meet. Mm-hmm. And Brother David, I'm so glad you mentioned him. I mean, he's oh, an yes. inspiration to me. And he, you know, there, there was in the middle 70s to the early 80s when MDMA was a therapy drug and it was kept quiet because it was legal. We were able to introduce it to people who wouldn't otherwise commit a crime. And Brother David was one of those. And so once the DEA started moving against MDMA, we were prepared for that. And we had the first lawsuit against the DEA. And then we were able to have Brother David and others speak to the media. So the first major media about MDMA ever that was in Newsweek, and Brother David was quoted as saying mm-hmm. that um, a dose of MDMA was like 20 years in meditation. And so we had a rabbi in uh, the Washington Post talk about MDMA like the Sabbath. So I'm, I'm glad that, that this resonates because for me, I'm, I'm sometimes reluctant because it's easy for people to dismiss you as a flake. No, so even though I've true. got a Harvard PhD... I'm careful about the psychedelic spirituality because it, it is, but I do firmly believe in it. And that's the, that's the ground, the basis of why I'm doing this work. Yeah. yeah and I think that that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's really, that's really, really fantastic. And I mean, and, and in my opinion, it, it is truly based in pure altruism. And that is really, uh, really what I think the world needs. That's and, the foundation for the Marine Corps. I mean, that's that altruistic model. I mean, that's what we're all about. And Rick, if anyone ever thinks you're flaky for uh, daunting spirituality, the Marine Corps got your back. I can't speak for all of them. But. And so does, hey. I guess, the Order of Saint. And so does the Order of Saint Benedict. Then I suppose. Yeah. There you go. But uh, well, yeah. the yeah. Veterans for um, Entheogenic Therapy is going to have a lot of members, uh, a lot more members soon. Um, I think with what we're doing, and um, I guess we're going to wrap up here. Um, I just wanted to, anyone that's interested in this, do check out our website because Ryan is going to be speaking. Um, uh, Tony. Oh, Tony. Sorry, up. Brian. I, I wanted to catch you earlier. That's Tony Macy. We'll be speaking at Symposium. I thought it was both you guys, but it, it's just Tony. I, we, I might, we might have, we might, we might have to give tried you. to make it up there. Yeah. Uh, all right. So it's going to be Tony. Um, He's close by. Yeah. Check them. Uh, Check them out. They're linked up on our website. We have uh, we linked up the maps video on our website, okay. which is uh, Symposia. It's spelt with a P, so P S Y M P O S I A, and we have them linked up there. And we have the live stream. Um, it's ten bucks. We're gonna give a portion of that to uh, to the veterans group to get them off the ground. And um, so I do hope that people. Uh, check this out and we have a lot of people on board so far and it's really um it's really uh taking off right now so absolutely i do want to thank great. both you guys for being here yeah this, this has been a been great a show. very good conversation i've really enjoyed it and it's a conversation that needs that needs light and um it's kind of a topic that uh that a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking with often with uh, and, uh, 
just uh, uh, and 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 maybe for another show, Rick, I'd really love to uh, expand upon uh, that uh, the the last topic that we spoke about oh. with our brother David. Um, I I uh, my my particular field of research is mysticism. Uh, oh, really? Yes, Jake, that's great. So uh, and and particularly Western mysticism. So uh, I would love, uh, and of course, well, if you study Western mysticism, it always it always carries over to the East in some way too. But um, you know, so I, I would I would really love to uh, to get you back on, and we could maybe talk a little bit about that too. So that'd be great. I I would really like that because I I do think that they, um, yeah, you know, I I mean, I don't want to get too far out there, but I I do think that the the <laughs> way and well, what Robert Mueller was saying is that the uh, United Nations is for helping mediate. Uh, disputes between countries, but underneath that is disputes between religions. And mm-hmm. I do think that the survival of the planet, we're facing such crises from, you know, global warming and extinction and poverty and economic inequality that, that I, I do think a spiritual sense is really what's necessary, a spiritual revival. And I, so yeah, I, would, I, I would be very glad. I think the United States needs a little bit of that right now, especially with uh, the divide that I see between yeah. science and religion right now in this country. It's getting it's getting hot, and I think that needs to be uh, addressed a little bit. Yeah, and you know what? We 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 should do an entire program on this. Actually, I really think that would be fantastic. So, it would be really great. Great, great topic. I I wouldn't mind talking about some William James and Carl Jung. Oh. William James, oh, um, love him. The I, I nitrous know, oxide. I know phil- the nitrous oxide <laughs> philosopher, William James. Who man? <laughs> <laughs> he was uh he was he had one of my fun. favorites. Yeah, you know w- 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 one of the greatest things I I I I I thought he said was the only thing that we know is that we are a consciousness system that exists in the present moment. It's the only thing we know. Anything outside of that is an assumption. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, you know the the building at Harvard, <laughs> the psychology building is named after William James. Yeah. And um you know, my my favorite quote of his is uh, is sort of terrific. He um, he said, uh, "There's a Harvard man on the wrong side of every issue." <laughs> <laughs> so don't get too uh, hung up on credentials, and you know, look at yeah. what people are saying. <laughs> yeah, read, read read what they're saying. Yeah, not 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 what letters they have. So right, right. Yeah. Well, well Rick, thank you, Jake, Ryan. and thank you, Brian, for this opportunity. Thank you so we much. We feel that the, the research is great, but the public education is really the key. I agree. Uh, any final Big thoughts uh, from uh, any of you guys? Uh, yeah, I hope this reach, reaches any veterans out there that are struggling right now. There is hope. Uh, keep your heads up. Search for us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and we also have a group now that I will be closing to make it private for uh, veterans only. Uh, so that we can openly engage in discussion uh, on personal levels for PTSD. The page will sort of be an updater uh, with activity. And we also have a Peru trip coming up in July uh, where veterans will be, tra- will be traveling to sit in a 10-day retreat with oh. uh, a uh, ayahuasca retreat center. So, wow, And I will be collecting data for that for my graduate <laughs> thesis. Wow. <laughs> And I, I guess my final thought is just that as at the exact time that we've been having this discussion, there's a bunch of veterans and others that are protesting in Arizona in favor of our marijuana PTSD study and against the senator, state senator Yee, that has blocked a, a House vote to fund our mar- medical marijuana study. So that the, the you know, we, we shouldn't get overconfident. There's a lot of 
overcoming still to do of people that are really not wanting to see the science. And yet um, it's just so heartening to see that veterans are willing to um, protest uh, in favor of science. This is is the way the walls are going to come down, I think. Yeah. I'm pretty pretty sure about that. It's like a metaphorical Berlin Wall. Yeah. So any uh, final... Any final thoughts, uh, Brian, Rick? No, I'm all uh, set. Thank both of you guys for joining yeah. us. we got to do this again. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, just uh, stay with us until we end the program. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Dose Nation. As always, uh, we're here with you. And uh, you can uh, find us on Facebook to stay updated with everything that we do. It's facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. We also have a um, Twitter account that you can follow and uh, all of our uh, Facebook stuff also gets put over there, and we get some extra Twitter stuff going on too once in a while. So you can go to twitter.com forward slash dose nation uh, and soundcloud.com forward slash dose nation. Uh, there's a special series there um, that is uploaded about uh, Benedictine uh, spirituality and my stay at uh, a Benedictine monastery that you guys can check out as well, um, as well as some dose nation music that some of us created. So. Uh, uh, and uh, also check us out on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Dose Nation video. And there's, uh, there's actually a video with photos of the Abbey um, on there. So, uh, And, of course, uh, you know, please uh, visit dosenation.com, and we have an Amazon click-through. You can donate uh, if you'd like. That really helps us keep the studio running. It helps us, uh, you know, continue our work here, and uh, you know, just uh, just helps pay the bills. So yeah, my my Amazon tab is uh, already bookmarked as Dose Nation. So <laughs> anything I do on there, I don't even. That's the well, thank you, way Brian. Yeah, that's the easiest way to do it without forgetting. Yeah, every just time to go on there. Book. Yeah, just 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 bookmark the Amazon tab, and that and you can buy all your books. Right it's a good trick. There. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a perfect trick. So thank you for 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 yeah. uh, for helping us out. All right, well, thank you everybody for listening to Toast Nation. We will see you all soon. Everybody have a good morning, good evening, or a good afternoon. Sorry, I screwed up the order there, but wherever the you are in the show. world, yeah, <laughs> wherever you are in the world, <laughs> I hope you've had a wonderful time. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all next time. Don't forget symposia. Don't forget symposia. Yes, <laughs> have April a good 12th. one, everybody. Over and out. <laughs>